0: Hey guys, it's Nathan, and this is episode 31 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I hope you're having an amazing week. Thank you, as always, for all the messages I get uh, my email, my Facebook, comments, likes, anything to do with the podcast. I love hearing from you guys, and it it keeps me motivated to pump out these episodes for you guys every week. And thank you to those of you who uh, have reached out about working together. Pretty full schedule in terms of coaching at the moment but i love when somebody inquires and says hey you know that stuff you're talking about on the the podcast i want a bit of that i want a little piece of that for my life i want to finally be more authentic and live a more authentic life i want to find what my true passion and purpose is i want to feel more love more joy i'm sick of living this way i'm sick of feeling like shit all the time and uh like i can't be myself it's so I recently signed a new client who heard about me from the podcast and for me that's my greatest joy. So feel free to reach out to me anytime. If you do want to work with me or if you want to explore some options of what that might look like, you can reach out to me on Facebook or just email me anytime, Nathan at com, and I'll hit you straight back. I've been contemplating this week and one of the things I think about a lot is is this feeling of how to not give a fuck about what people think about you. How to stop caring so much about what people think about you. And one of the ideas I've explored around this is, is learning to speak your truth, even when it feels scary. A lot of us have this thing where we're scared of offending people or we're scared of saying the wrong thing or scared of saying something and then realizing that people won't like us or will judge us and maybe even just confrontation. A lot of people have a fear of awkwardness or awkward situations and confrontation. I certainly had that. And so I've been exploring this idea of how can you learn to speak your truth? I'm not talking about just controversial subjects or like, you know, weird beliefs that you want to share, but more like your truth in every moment. So if you're in a situation and you're feeling uncomfortable or you're feeling awkward or you're feeling embarrassed, just saying, man, I feel really embarrassed right now and learning to just say what's there. We have such a installed system of metering what comes out of our mouth. We We stop speaking our truth. And one of the ways to do this is to find a a person that you can actually start speaking your truth to, who you know is not going to judge you, who you know is not going to hold you to those words, but it's just going to allow you the space to start practicing speaking your truth. I had this with a client recently who had a particularly tumultuous upbringing. Her father was abusive, and so she felt she couldn't speak her truth to her father for fear of getting hurt. And so she just learned to not say what she felt or not say what her truth was. And once we uncovered that, I took her through a really beautiful healing process to heal some of those pains of childhood and then encouraged her to find a safe person, turned out to be her husband, to start speaking all of your truth. And, you know, you give them a bit of a brief and say, hey, I'd like to practice just saying what's there for me, uh, whether it's anger or whether it's sadness or whether it's an opinion. And I'd appreciate if you could just hold the space for me to do that and not judge me or I feel confronted by it. And man, on the other side of that is so much freedom, so much freedom, just getting rid of that feeling, you know, that feeling you feel in your stomach or in your chest where you're like, oh, I can't, I'm scared. I'm scared of what other people think of me. And as you learn to speak your truth and take the sting out of your truth and not feel so fearful about saying certain things, you start to find true freedom. So my challenge for you this week is actually to, Find out what your truth is and where you're not saying it and find somebody that will allow you to start processing and bringing up some of those things that you're scared to say. My guest on the show this week is Brian Scrone. This is one of my favorite conversations so far, to be honest. It was unexpected. I don't know Brian that well. I was introduced from somebody else. And Brian's a property developer. He lives in Florida. He made a whole bunch of money well before 2008. Almost went bankrupt and lost everything and then has recovered and developed a, another very, very high-end portfolio of property. Uh, He had a bit of a crazy period during his teenage years and early 20s, uh, which led him to what he's doing now. And I I asked him all about that period of his life, and it was so interesting to me. It's led Brian to write a book called What Matters Most, which is a book all about priorities and how do you actually figure out what your priorities are in life. And he's come up with this this priority list called the 5 Fs, which he goes into detail in the episode. I enjoyed this. It was a surprise. It was deep, and it was very emotional at times. And without further ado, enjoy this fantastic conversation with the very powerful Brian Skrand. Yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, thank you for uh, having me in. And- so where to start? I grew up uh in a pretty loving, nurturing environment in uh, New Jersey, uh, a little small town about a half hour outside of New York City. So I, I was exposed to uh, all of the big city stuff as a youngster. We used to, you know, I remember skipping out of uh, grammar school and taking the train into the city and, and going to bars and strip clubs as a young man and uh, probably getting exposed to a lot of stuff that, uh, I definitely should not have <laughs> at that age. And, um, when I turned 13, I, uh, I, I went completely off the rails. I, I don't, I, I haven't ever been able to pinpoint why at 13 other than the fact that probably my hormones were raging. <laughs> um, and I started drinking and drugging and sleeping with as many women as possible. And then that, that sort of escalated into dealing drugs. Um, and then when I hit 21, I had um, what I guess you could call a rock bottom for me anyway. I, I got two different girls pregnant in a six month time frame, which both uh, ended in abortions. And as I said, I, I grew up with a pretty loving, nurturing household. My, my dad's actually a deacon in the Catholic Church. So I, I, I did have a lot of dogma and guilt just from the religious part of my upbringing. And when you marry that with a couple of abortions in a six month time frame, it, it just totally fucked me up. I went into a pretty nasty, gnarly depression, a really dark, you know, dark place in my life. And I, to be honest with you, I, I, sort of lingered around there for, for a couple of years, just wallowing in the shit and trying to figure out, you know, is, is life worth living? And, is, you know, am I, am I evil? Um, you know, how the hell did I get myself in this, in this predicament? And and ultimately I, I wallowed around for a couple of years and then I, I got to a point where I was just not wanting to get out of bed in the morning. I was living in a place called Santa Barbara, California, which Physically is one of the most beautiful places in the world, in my opinion, and it did nothing for me. I, I was just in a shitty place, so I, I finally reached out for help. Um, I hired a, a shrink that was like a, a pro bono shrink because I didn't have any cash at the time. I was pretty broke, and um, uh, she—it was—it was definitely one of the best things I ever did. She just gave me perspective. Was really loving, nurturing, you know, non-judgmental. Um, gave me some good tools and you know, fast forward 20 years from, from then, cause I'm about, I'm 43 now and this was all going down around my early twenties. Um, I don't have it all figured out. Um, but as I, as I talk to you today, I have a, a loving, nurturing, you know, marriage with my best friend and we have two, two beautiful young boys. I'm, I'm running a couple of, uh, businesses that, that I perceive as successful and it gives me a lot of freedom of time to, to focus on what matters most for me. So, um, that's that's my story in about 2 minutes but uh, I'm happy to go into as much detail as you like.
0: <laughs> well well I'm interested you you growing up in New York you don't you know from what I can tell when you we meet people, people in Manhattan there's not many people that are actually from New York. So someone that like you that's actually grown up in and around New York. Uh I guess it's a from an outside perspective it's like wow, that must be pretty cool but if you're prone to um drinking and going to strip clubs it's probably not the best place to be around. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I mean it's all it's all voluntary, right? I mean it it was it was radically different from how I was raised, um, but I, I don't know. I just I didn't have the maturity level or the connection to myself or to whatever my higher power is at, at the time in my life to uh, care about anything other than being completely narcissistic and just feeding all the you know the demons that I had running around inside me.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say you know you can't pinpoint a time or, or where that behavior came from, but and. and I think that's in society when we look at people you kind of go you, you want to pin it on something you want to go oh, it was their upbringing it was this it was an abusive father it was that but it's an interesting perspective I haven't heard much to say hey I don't really know where this came from I just had demons and I played them out
1: Yeah yeah I mean look I think uh <laughs> you know it's going to sound in contrast to to our our uh, conversation so far, but uh, where I'm at today, I, 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 truly and honestly believe that we're, we're actually perfectly divine spirits trying to figure out how to have this, this human experience, which can be really confusing and scary and, um, and feel shitty at times for people. The, the rub is, is that I talk about this in the book that, you know, the majority or the masses, myself included for the first 30 years of my life, believe that we're humans trying to get lucky once in a while and have this, you know, this aha or spiritual experience, when, when in fact, I, I believe that it's the opposite. Um, and it took me a while to wrap my head around that. I remember the first time I heard someone saying that, you know, that you're perfect divine spirit the way you are. And you're just, you know, you're just here for a hundred years on borrowed time and trying to figure out how to move around in these meat bags we've been gifted. But uh, after years and years of sort of pondering that, I, I actually started to believe it and, and I, I fully embrace it now. And, and to be honest with you, Nathan, it just makes for me anyway, and it's very personal and subjective, it makes, when when you do have these hiccups and these bumps and bruises in life, which everyone deals with on a daily basis, and I continue to, I, I, I'm able to laugh at myself a little quicker and a little easier than than I did 20 years ago, where I just laid around and, and you know, was depressed for a few years.
0: And where does the, the Catholic part of your upbringing uh, come into the story? It's uh, I, I wasn't raised Catholic, but I hear a lot of people that were raised Catholic in some of the stories and some of the like you say, the dogma and beliefs and, and, you know, they can affect people sometimes for a long time. So did that have any effect? And what's your relationship with religion now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it absolutely had an effect. Cause I, I think that my, my outlash and when I, when I became a teenager and just getting into all the shit was basically a big fuck you to the church. And I, I, I was raised again in, with a father that was a deacon. So I was raised in and around the church in in a big way and it was just a very very much a big part of uh my childhood unfortunately for me i i logged on to and paid attention to the negativity and the and the guilt and the fear that and, and it's not to pinpoint the catholic church i think every major religion has that I've, I've been blessed to travel the world and be exposed to all the religions and here and the reality is is that it's uh I try to treat it like a buffet. Now I, I take the good and, and, and leave the, what I perceive as the negative in any, uh, in any organization or religion, um, aside. But for me, it was definitely tied to, um, a lot of fear, a lot of guilt as a child. And, and my, again, when I hit, you know, hit puberty, I was just like, fuck this. I'm going to, you know, show them and prove them that I can, I can do it on my own. And obviously that, that didn't pan out really well. <laughs> um, to answer your question, as far as where I'm at today with religion, I, I don't claim any religion. I, I, I claim to be a, a, a perfect spirit, having this human experience that I mentioned earlier. My wife and I are very much on the same page with that, which I think is, is absolutely critical in, a, in, in, in raising a family. So when it comes to our young children, we have a four and a five-year-old boy, we are letting, you know, for the, the I guess the best way to describe it is we let mother nature raise them. And, and you know, we just try to guide and, we're, we're huge fans of the outdoor surfing is a passion of mine where we live on a little island and we're in the ocean or at the beach or some kind of water activity on a daily basis so i, I find there, there's a lot of beauty and spirituality and just you know getting outside and uh hopefully that we we uh we give that gift to our children and then let them decide what they want to do when they get, get the age that's uh they're mature enough to figure out what's going to guide them but i'm you know, I don't want to prescribe anything. I just want to hopefully, you know, lead by example and hopefully uh show them some cool shit along the way. <laughs>
0: what 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 are some of the examples you said you've traveled and experienced different parts of religion? What are some of the 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 pieces of different religions that have have had the biggest impact on you?
1: Yeah, um I I have a background in uh I've been practicing yoga for 20 years and I actually literally just went to uh India in the last six months for my for my first trip. So, um, you know, that philosophy of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, I think there's a ton of beauty in it. Um, my wife and I got married in Thailand. So we're, we're fascinated by this, you know, the the Asian culture in general. And I do a lot of business um, in the Middle East and in Israel. So I've been exposed to, you know, Muslim and Jews and growing up in, in New York and outside of New York, I was I was basically a minority. So I was from a young age, exposed to a ton of, uh, of diversity in different, um, you know, different religions, different cultures. And, you know, I just try to embrace it all. I, I, uh, my biggest rub on a daily basis is, is not being judgmental. Um, and, and just trying to find the the beauty in, uh, in everything. Cause I, I think no one's got it all figured out. No one's right or wrong. It's, it's totally, uh, a subjective personal conversation. I, I talk a lot about faith in the in the first chapter of my book. And for me, that's nothing more than a relationship with yourself. And if you have a higher power, great. And if you call it Allah, great. And if you call it Buddha, great. And if you call it Jesus, great. I, I'm not here to, to prescribe. I'm, I I just, again, I try to treat it like a buffet. And hopefully that's what what we uh, will impart on our children to, you know, keep an open mind and, and don't get attached too much. I think that all the, you know, most suffering comes from getting attached to shit and you know, with with organized religion, obviously there's a, there's very much a structure that that attaches you to a, a certain way of believing or a, a certain set of um, structured ways of thinking, which I, I think can be good, but it can also pigeonhole you, and you got to be careful there.
0: You mentioned the book. The book's called What Matters Most. It was an, an Amazon bestseller when it was released, and you talk about the five Fs. And the first yeah. one, as you mentioned, is faith, and we'll, we'll come back and touch on the other ones in a minute, but. Man, India, like that—that that to me is exciting, and that, that's something that I've spent a lot of time. I lived in Asia for three and a half years, and I spent a lot of time in Thailand. And you know, as much as uh, the Thais are very Buddhist, just the, their way of being, in terms of the smile and the happiness, is uh, an incredible thing to be around. But India is somewhere I haven't have yet to venture, and I—I I don't know if you felt this, but I feel like a little bit of trepidation about it. I don't know why, but also know uh, that that will be part of my journey at some point so what was that yeah, like
1: yeah I, I number one i highly recommend it i didn't have any trepidation other than the fact that i didn't want to get uh, bali belly while i was there i'm <laughs> yeah. sorry i should say, belly. Yeah. <laughs> Dally, Dally, yeah sorry <laughs> i've, I've uh, i actually experienced bali belly on a surf trip so that, that was the confusion there but um i didn't have any trepidation i had a lot of excitement and um, anticipation again coming from a a yogic background for 20 years. And just knowing that that's the root of it all. I went there with zero expectations. I went there with a, uh, an elder Tibetan, uh, friend that I, that I talk a lot about in the book that I, uh, has become like a second father to me. And he's a, he's a godfather to our children. And he, he's just a, um, just a sweet, sweet, simple man that I, I really look to as a a role model in, um, in every regard. Um, so really the trip was honestly, a He's he's getting older. He's 80 plus years old. He doesn't know exactly how old he is because he was born up in the Himalayas in Tibet before the uh, the invasion of China, and obviously they didn't have paperwork back then. Um, So he the point is is that he's getting older. He's slowing down, and I wanted to do the pilgrimage with him. I I wanted to do it anyway, um, but to do it with him just made it that much sweeter. And um, I I, any of the listeners or or yourself, I I cannot recommend it highly enough. I mean, you want to talk about a an eye opener. We're, we're, we're so spoiled the way, in my opinion, the way we're, we're raised in the, in the Western hemisphere for the most part with, I mean, just the the mere fact that we got clean potable water and, you know, a roof over our heads and, and um, the basic needs of, of life are met. Um, over there is the, the complete opposite. I mean, most of the people are living in poverty and then there is extreme wealth, but, um, it's, it's a radical place. It's, uh, It'd be hard to describe in words. On, that. I think you just need to get on a plane and go experience it. My, I
0: but was. how much for, time did you spend there?
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say, which is which is a rub. Uh, I was only there for ten days because I have a rule around travel with with young children. So I, I never go anywhere in the world for more than ten days with, uh, away from my children. And I do plan on taking my wife and kids back to India, but at the age my kids are at right now, I don't want them swallowing the water and and being sick the whole time we're there. So I will go back. But I, it was a short trip for me, but it was a magic trip. I um, We spent all of our time in a little mountain town called Dharmasala up in the in the, uh, in the the Himalayas in the north of the country. Um, I want to go back and surf in the south. And there's the, the yoga that I follow. There's, there's a couple of ashrams in the south of the country that I want to spend some time at. So it, it's a huge, huge place, obviously. And I mean, you could spend your whole lifetime there and scratch the surface, but I'll, I'll <laughs> definitely go back.
0: So what I know yoga in the West we've taken that just to mean the practice of doing the yoga stretching. But I've heard some people mention that the yogic practice is so much more than just the small part that we know. Do you have any yeah. experience with that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um you hit the nail on the head. I mean when when people hear that word it's it's either they get a good feeling or they get a feeling like, oh fuck, that's you know, I can't put my my ankles behind my head. So I don't want to know any, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah. So for me, it's, there's definitely a physical practice to it, but it's much more of a lifestyle and you try and, you know, take that, that inner peace and that self love that you can experience when you get quiet on a daily basis and, and take it off the mat and take it into, you know, being a father and being a friend and, and running businesses and, you know, take it, take it throughout your day. It's much more of a, of a lifestyle. I had this, uh, uh, again, growing up outside of New York City, we have a, we tend to have an edge about us, but I have a, a friend that, uh, grew up in New Jersey, not far from us, and our kids go to school together. And she sent me this, this, uh, sticker in a text message. And it, it said at the top, it said, I'm, I'm mostly peace, love, and, and light and a little bit of go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I, she said, you know, this reminds me of you. So I, I think that, um, we all, <laughs> you know, you got to keep a sense of humor about stuff. I mean, if you're not, I, I look at everything, if, if you're not having fun, then it's not sustainable. So I always try to inject uh, fun into everything that we're doing.
0: I want to circle back a little bit. Um, and I know it's, it's, uh, you're such a positive person. And I know it's probably hard to to relate to that person that you used to be, but it's, it's, it's helpful for the people listening. But that, that time when you were 21, when you hit that rock bottom moment, two girls pregnant, what, what, I know you said the therapy was a big help, but how did you get through that time? How did you survive when lots of people don't survive or struggle to pull themselves out of that or don't know where to look? Yeah. What was the yeah, difference a, for you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think here's the the short answer is is that uh, it's a process and not an event, so I, I haven't healed completely, and I, and I found that out real quick when I sat down in the last two years to write the book because um, I told myself I had forgiven myself and moved on, and that was horseshit because i can't tell you the healing and the emotion and the tears and the and the laughter and the conversations that came out of me revisiting it 20 plus years later with uh you know a beautiful wife and two boys which is really you know really really tender because when i you know now that i am a father and i look i look at at my two boys and i i question you know those those abortions and you know is this a reincarnation and uh, you know is it uh it's it's never it's never going to leave my heart or my brain or my my mind. Um, so it's definitely a process. Um, I, I just reached out for help, like I said earlier, to a shrink that I think was a smart thing to do, just to spill the beans and, and get some objective feedback. Because the reality is, we can't be objective with ourselves, and the reality is, our the people that we're closest to that we would normally reach out to first cannot be as objective as i think that we need so talking to strangers is sometimes is a really good thing and like i said before i wallowed around and shit i mean i, I laid in bed and cried every morning living in santa barbara even after i i was working with that string. and it's i think it's just a timing thing it's it's a time time heals all wounds but they'll, it's, it's a process you know they, they use the word healing process not healing event and i mean as we sit here on the phone today i uh I did an interview earlier in the week and I, and I had a similar question and I really, really made me think, uh, you know, that at the end of the day, it's a, it's a process, not an event. So I, like I said earlier, I don't have it figured out, but I, I use some really simple, effective tools in my life and I try to surround myself with some really, really smart, loving people that, uh, I can, you know, leverage off their expertise or their wisdom and then just put my own tweak on it. And, try to enjoy
0: writing, writing the book. And I know you do these live videos and stuff, but there must be a lot of catharsis and, and just telling the story powerfully and, and, and working through it like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I own it now. I, uh, I remember a couple of years ago I was invited to do a a talk at uh, my buddy, Philip McKernan out of, he just moved, he's an Irish citizen, but he just moved to his family to Boulder. He has this incredible experience called one last talk. And, um, you know, he asks you to get on stage, um, and, and share with a room full of a couple hundred strangers, which you're, you know, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what's the message you want to leave with your, with your loved ones and with the world. And, um, you know, at first I thought I was going to talk about the five F's and he, he quit, he challenged me and looked at me and he said, really, is that really, you know, if you're going to get hit by a truck tomorrow, you want to talk about the five Fs?" and I had to (laughs) take, take a step back and as much as I believe in the value of those relationships, which are, we can talk about later. Um, I had to take a step back and say, wait a minute, what, you know, I got two young boys at home. If I know I'm going to get hit by a truck tomorrow, what do I want to leave them as a gift or, you know, verbalize or show as an example of them. And, and ultimately the, the words, you know, self love and forgiveness came to me. And that's what the whole front half of the book is about is telling the story. And then, Talking about the, the process of moving through all that shit and asking for help and, and um, you know working on myself and and really just figuring out what my priorities are and then I invest my time accordingly and that's that's really the goal or the messaging in the book is is to help um, you know the reader or the viewer the listener look at those five relationships that are completely universal and then um, you know ask themselves the questions how do they prioritize them um, I can tell you from from personal experience and from interviewing thousands of people and giving talks that there's a complete disconnect between what we tell ourselves are our priorities and how we invest our time. Um, and, and so hopefully we just are able to help some people get clarity around that. And it's, it's so personal and so subjective, Nathan. Um, everybody's at a different point in their lives. So it's, you know, the goal is just to, to serve people and help people and hopefully, uh, you know, create some laughter and help people forgive themselves a little quicker.
0: Yeah, this has been a, a challenge for me. You know, my I don't know if you've heard of the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram seven which means like the perpetual child, <laughs> the Peter Pan type. They're just always looking for something new and exciting and always moving around and always travelling and starting new things and priority is my mantra to to stay focused. So uh what drives me or you know, if I'm not careful what drives me is a fear of boredom and a fear of missing out on something. And if I give in to those fears, then I can end up just filling up my day with a whole load of stuff that's not important and not just, just to escape that fear of being bored. Mm-hmm. And so my new mantra and this is only something I'm just discovering is um, prioritizing is is everything because you know if you keep yourself busy, then you wake up you know three months a year down the track and you haven't gone anywhere, you haven't moved any closer to where you're trying to get to you've just stayed not bored (laughs) for that amount of time. So what would you recommend for me in terms of so the five F's just so we're clear is faith, family, friends, finance, and fitness. How would you go about the process? Obviously read the books. It could, could start, but what's the process of finding your priorities in those areas?
1: Yeah. So I have a really simple tool that takes all of five minutes. That's actually in the, in the center of the book. And, um, we have free downloads of it on our, on my, uh, my website and, and, and truly and honestly, it's a five minute exercise that just asks you to and, and for the listeners, you can just do this with a pen and paper. It's that simple. Um, just write down those five relationships. Again, they're faith, fitness, family, friends and finance. The reality is, is that those relationships are timeless, borderless and uh, affecting every human being on the uh, on the planet. Um, and just get quiet with a pen and paper, um, turn off your phone, get away from your family, friends or any distractions and, and sit for a few minutes and ask yourself the question, how do you prioritize those five things? And there's no right or wrong. The best thing you can do is be 100 uh, percent brutally honest with yourself. You know, put a number. So you one would next.
0: prioritize the the, the five years first of all.
1: That's exactly what I would do. Right. Um, and then I, I mm-hmm. there's a second part of that tool that I ask um, everybody to look at their waking hours. Everyone will agree that we got about 16 waking hours in a day. If you're listening to the doctor and getting about eight hours of sleep, that leaves you 16 hours to play with on a daily basis. So it's an even playing field when it comes to time. So the idea is just to first get clear on your priorities. And then once you're crystal clear on your priorities, you can then start to invest your time accordingly. The rub is, is that most people, myself included for, again, for the majority of my life, were my feet hit the ground, just like you were describing earlier, a couple minutes ago, and I was in complete reaction mode all day. Um, If the phone would ring, I would pick it up. If the email would, 74 emails would come in, I would sit down and try to get through with them all. If there was a, a, whatever, whatever it was in my life, I was in complete chaos and reaction mode all day, every day. Um, and that shit does not work. It's not sustainable and it creates misery. (laughs) So, you know, back to the tool and to answer your question, once you get clear on those five relationships and there's no right or wrong way to prioritize them, then you look at how do you, how do you invest your time on an average day? And I can guarantee that 99% of the the people that do this tool, that they will see a direct disconnect, or what what I call a congruency gap between what they're what they're telling themselves or their priorities and how they invest their time. So to give you an example for, for me to make it sort of tangible for for the people listening is, I was telling myself that my my faith, you know, this this idea of nurturing yourself and loving on yourself and forgiveness, putting religion aside was, was my top priority. And then I looked at. how much time are you allotting for yourself on a daily basis and how much time are you taking time to get quiet? And you know, again, going back to yoga and meditation, this is 20 years ago. Um, and it was like five minutes if I was lucky. And that was like a couple hours, a couple days out of the seven a week. And so I had to call bullshit on myself and say, wait a minute, if I'm telling myself that that faith and and loving and nurturing of myself is my priority. And yet I'm not taking, um, a good chunk of every day and and investing it, it just solely in myself then I had to call bullshit on myself. And I and again, you know, I know that from interviewing and from speaking to thousands of people on stages that there is a disconnect for the majority of people so that if they take the time and go through this exercise and get brutally honest with themselves and say, OK, you know, family's number one. Great. Well, how much time am I spending on a on a on a daily basis? Then they can start to rearrange and and um, reprioritize how they're investing their time.
0: And then we have the procrastination that's that's the thing that <laughs> procrastination and distraction. so do you have a tool for dealing with those things once you've got your priorities? because
1: you know, yeah, sometimes you get
0: clear on the priorities and then something catches your attention
1: yeah I, I you know smoke a joint <laughs> <laughs> um whatever i don't I don't have a prescription for that I, I'd say whatever works for you um i mean it, it is virtually impossible for someone to someone else to motivate another person. Only the person themselves can motivate themselves. I think that you can have a lot of influence on people. So that's what I try to do with the messaging in the book and give some really simple, effective tools to do that. But I, here's what I know is, is that when the pain is great enough, Nathan, that you will make a change. And for me, that was two abortions in a six month time frame and me saying to myself, um, I either want to kill myself or I need to make some radical changes and and start reprioritizing um how I invest my time on a daily basis. And again, that took a while to figure out, and I don't have it all figured out as as we have this call today, and it, it, I'm constantly tweaking and and working and and, and educating myself. but I, I the older I get, Nathan, the more simplicity I want, um, especially being a young father. Um, and so if I can just look, you know I look at every day um, around those five relationships because everyone's touching them on a daily basis, whether you like to admit it or not. Um, And whatever that looks like for you. And so if you can step back and simplify the things that are going on in your world, it helps you get really clear on your priorities. And then, you know, you you, like I said earlier, you're just going to invest your time according to your priorities. And it's a game. It was a game changer for me. And I know, you know, it's helped People simplify and really get clear on what matters most, which is is the name of the book. I think there's so many fucking distractions in today's day and age, especially with, with technology and for like the younger generations and the millennials. And, um, you know, there, there's such an addiction to technology that um, we don't even lift our heads up from our phones or our gadgets to to look people in the eyes and connect with them and, and get back to the basics. And that's that's really what uh, what my messaging is about.
0: Why would you write the book?
1: Uh, to scratch my own itch. Um, and, you know, subconsciously, I think that uh, my, my spirit was telling me that I had not forgiven myself properly from the, the chaos that I talked about earlier. And I think that I was at the point in my life where I, I was more excited about helping people than I, than I was worried about the fear of being judged because, you know, writing a book and doing these interviews and getting on stages and, 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 you know, airing your dirty laundry is, is not the most comfortable thing. And it it, it did help. It held me back for years. And I was so worried about what people would say or think or do, or, you can imagine having a conversation like that with your parents or with your with your wife or, yeah. you know, specifically about the abortions is what I'm what I'm referring to, because that's really what fucked me up the most. Um, and it was, you know, I I remember just writhing in my own skin, just completely fe- filled with fear and anxiety about what what's the reaction I'm going to get from my from my mother when I go to her and tell her that I had, that I was involved in two abortions. And, you know, I talk about it in the book, but just you know, for the listeners, you know, her, her response, 22 years later, I took her to, uh, to a a personal retreat in, in Ireland. So we had a really nice intimate environment with someone on one time and some pints of Guinness. And I, I, you know, I remember even again, this was just last, last summer, fast forward, you know, 21 years, 22 years after the abortions, just being so scared to go and have the conversation with her. And Her immediate response without hesitation was, I, oh, sweetheart, I just wish you would have told me, um, you know, when you were going through that 20 years ago, because I I could have been praying for my unborn grandchildren all this time and, and loving on you and being there for you. And, and that's the shit that, that we, you know, I carried that, that, that poison around in me, um, in, in in fear of being judged or, you know, anxiety of, of being judged. And the response I got was the most loving, nurturing, uh, you know, motherly advice that she could ask for My father, father gave me a, you know, in his own words, a very similar response, which I talk about in the book. And my wife and I had some really deep heart to hearts, you know, a lot of tears. She completely opened up to me about some shit from her past that I wasn't aware of because I, you know, I was vulnerable and I said, look, this is, I, you know, this is what happened. And, you know, I, I wanted to kill myself over it. And, um, this is where I'm at today. And I feel like I need to, get it out, get it out there and hopefully it'll help some people. And, you know, humbly, I can say uh, it it has. I mean, I've had 75 year old women come to me when I get off stage and and with tears in their eyes saying that they had an abortion, you know, 60 years ago or 55 years ago when they were teenagers or in their 20s and had completely buried it and not shared it with anyone. And so when you, you know, when you get out of your own way and you you put the anxiety aside, it, it, it truly does help people.
0: Well, it's very moving for me. How did you feel when your mom said that?
1: Well, I I melted into her arms and she held me and rocked me like I was a fucking uh, infant, you know, just just magic. I mean, you can't put – it's hard to put words around. Um, It's definitely the closest that I've ever felt to her in my life. Um, I can say that. Um, And I I have a beautiful, beautiful, loving friendship with my mom. I mean, she's one of my best friends and always has been. But when you – can look her in the eyes and 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 just open up and have her, you know, answer the way she did, and I, I get emotional just uh, taking myself back to that mm-hmm. that conversation. I mean, it's yeah, it's fucking magic. It's priceless, mate. You can't put a can't put a. Uh, it's it's hard to put words around, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a blessing. I know not everybody has, you know, an amazing relationship with their parents. I have a great relationship with my parents and. Yeah, I'm grateful for that, you know, the ability to have those conversations, but it's it's interesting what was there for me is, you know, your greatest fear, and this has been true for me in so many parts of my life, My my the thing that I have the most fear about or the most anxiety about has the most incredible outcome through it, going through it, and so like to have that fear of, you know, telling your mum even 20 years later, and then to feel, on the other side of that, feel the closest you've ever felt to her, like that's such an amazing lesson in itself.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I mean, I, I would challenge um, you know anyone listening. If you're, look, I'm not here to prescribe anything. Like I said earlier, but at the end of the day, if, if you had the world stage and you had every human being in the world standing in front of you, and you asked the question, "Who here wants to be closer to their their mom or dad or, or son or daughter?" Um, if you really, really, you know, put the put the drama and the bullshit and the family. Um, Family stuff that comes along in every family and you put that shit aside, every hand in the fucking room is going to go up, right? Because there's not anybody in the world that doesn't want to be closer to the the people that they're, you know, that they're uh, and and, and you can include friends in that conversation. You know, for me, I have a lot of friends that I'm closer to than I am to blood relatives. But at the end of the day, human beings want to love, want to want to love and be loved. And it's that simple. And so you know, I would, I would challenge, um, you know, anyone that if you're, you know, you're disconnected from parents or your children or, you know, people that you give a shit about, it doesn't, doesn't need to be blood relatives. Um, you know, pull them aside and grab a beer or grab a coffee and, and have that conversation. It sucks. It's miserable. Um, you're going to get really uncomfortable. Um, but I, I'm here to tell you from experience that the, when you can break through and the reward far, far out, uh, outweighs the risk in, in having
0: the conversation. I mean, the podcast, this podcast is aimed at men, uh, mainly, but, uh, there's at least half of the, the listeners have ended up being incredible women that just want to learn more about men for their sons to understand their husbands better. Uh, but, but specifically the issue with men is around their fathers and there's a great book called manhood. Yeah. Uh, I don't, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. It's written by a Kiwi, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, the the guy's name is just um, missing it right now, but uh, Steve Biddlef, I think, is the guy who wrote it. But in there, he does a a thing where he, when he's doing seminars and he gets men to put their hands up about their relationships with their father. And to make a long story short, basically 30% of men have zero relationship with their father. They don't speak to them. Another 30% of the men maybe um, see their dad occasionally, but every time they see them, it's strained they cringe, their whole body tenses up, they don't really know how to relate to them, they're frustrated. Another 30% um, just see their dad on a regular basis, but it's nothing meaningful and it's nothing special. It's just out of an obligation. They go and see yeah. them you know, so once every surface, two weeks.
1: Surface bullshit. Yeah. Surface
0: bullshit. And then the last 10% have a really meaningful, loving, open, caring. They describe their dad as their best friend. So his summary is basically to say that 90% of men have a strained relationship with their father or none at all and only mm-hmm. 10% have a healthy relationship. So in terms of having these conversations and like you say, everybody deep down would probably admit they want to have a closer relationship with their family or parents in particular. What about your relationship with your dad? Uh, how has that evolved over time and where is it at now?
1: Yeah, it's a great question um, and what I what I appreciate. Um, it's it's far from perfect, but going back to this cathartic process of writing the book and, and it opening up some some really deep conversations that I wouldn't have had otherwise. That that event that my buddy in uh, Vancouver in, in, invited me to um, that I talked about earlier called One Last Talk, I, I am in that uh, 30% that um, met with my father on a regular basis uh, because I felt obligated and it was nothing but surface bullshit for the last for 40 out of the 43 years that I've been living with that said my dad's a great loving man you know always doing his best um i'm not here to beat him up and 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 at the end of the day it was my my demons and my fears and anxieties about you know opening up to him probably the same that he has to me um i, I think that it's it's very much reciprocated um there, there's this great saying um you know i learned to become a son the day i became a father and i think as as men we all struggle just to get out of our own fucking way and just open our mouths and our hearts, uh, because it's because we have this testosterone thing and we got this masculine thing going on that we don't want to let our guards down and open up. And and so for me, back to answer your question, I had surface bullshit for 40 years of my life. And I, my friend invited me to give that one last talk. And I thought, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to, Asked my dad to come and, um, and listen to this talk where I was going to spill my beans from, from a stage to a room full of strangers up in Canada um, about dealing drugs and, and getting arrested and having these abortions. And I thought, well, fuck it. You know, I'll, I'll invite my dad and, um, you know, if he, if, he, if he flies off the handle from the crowd, then I'll just fucking run out the back door of the stage. and
0: <laughs> Be uh, gone. Grab an Uber. Yeah,
1: yeah Exactly. <laughs> But, and I also jokes aside thought that you know what I mean what do I have to lose? Um, it's a pretty safe nurturing environment just the the theme of the the event And I think that I truly and honestly knew deep down in my soul that he was gonna react in a loving way because at the end of the day, he's a really loving sweet man um, that just wants you know the, he, he's very much about service and helping people um, and so I'm I'm up on stage, it's like a fifteen minute talk, it's pretty short, and you get right to the point and I said, This is this is who I am, this is what I did, these are the demons I lived with for years. And and at the end of my talk, he he's in like the third row and um he asked the the gentleman my friend that was putting on the event for the microphone and I thought, Oh fuck, here we go. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, so you can imagine it the level of of anxiety, um, at that point. And, you know, he grabbed the mic and he said, you know, I just want to tell you, and this is in front of a room full of 200 strangers. Um, and again, my dad is number one, deacon, number two, Italian, Sicilian, number three, former Marine. I mean, he, he looks like he could rip your head off. Um, and
0: knows how to speak as well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. he's, He's,
1: he's a very poignant, uh, communicator. And he said, you know, I just want to tell you that I love you. Um, and that I hope,
0: Sorry. Yeah, take your time. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing moment. He said,
1: I hope that your sons become the man that you are someday. Wow. And so all that surface bullshit from the last 40 years went away pretty quick. And I will say that the surface bullshit does arise again. Um, I will say that the relationship I have with my father changed on that day. And if I die tomorrow, I know that um, we're, 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 we're good with each other and we love each other and we're at peace and we respect one another. Um, I will also say that, you know, when he comes over the house, we pretty easily get back to the surface bullshit. And so it's, I feel it's my job as a, as an adult son to, you know, Call Call bullshit and call it tight with him, which I have on a handful of occasions over the last three years since we had that experience. Um, but the reality is is that I, I have a deep knowing in a in my heart that if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, I know where my old man's at, and he's got my back, and he just loves me for what I am um, and I think that that's what he wants from me too I mean he's far from fucking perfect. I mean, I could give you a laundry list of shit that he fucked up as a as a youngster, and I'm sure every man listening, um, could, can, uh, can, can relate. So,
0: um, yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, thank you for sharing that story and thank you for, you know, being vulnerable for us. Yeah. That's a a challenge I have with my dad is, um, you know, I've, I've taken the move to have some really deep conversations with him and sort of try and what I would call upgrade the relationship, not, not change it or, and make it wrong or whatever but just try and upgrade it and I think there's a there's a moment in every son's life where you have to uh, if your dad doesn't take that step move the relationship from dad and boy to man and man in some ways for a conversation or something like that so took me a while but I, I had that conversation with my father and I think it's it's interesting like Sometimes just sitting face to- face and doing that is maybe not the best way, like doing it through like what you did. I mean, not everybody has a stage with 200 people. they can just <laughs> open up and have their, their dad listen listen to their yeah. deepest, deepest stories. But you know, I know sometimes I've told my mum stuff that I want to pass on to my dad, and just not having that pressure for him to maybe respond in the moment, but because as men, we like to process. We like yeah. to get a piece of information and then go away and think about it and mull it over and decide, and ultimately we come back and go, "Yeah, this is how I feel about it." But maybe it takes a few days. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I got you just reminded me. I just was clearing out my stuff. I just moved, you know, from Japan a couple of weeks ago, and there was a letter there from my dad after he'd visited me in Auckland, and it just said, um, "I got it here with me." It just says, "Thanks for a great time together in Auckland, and for an amazing and entertaining dinner." Uh, I love you and the people that surround you. You certainly are living the dream. Keep up the good life. You certainly are an amazing person. And I'm really proud to be your dad. Like, fuck, I just found this thing out of nowhere, you know. It just was, it hit me straight in the heart because, you know, like our, our relationship really quickly goes back to surface bullshit, you know, like so quickly we can have really these tough, deep conversations. And then just like you say, naturally it just drifts back to two men talking about bullshit and so when i found that letter i was like oh god you know that was that's so raw and and so um it's just such a lovely reminder that even through the surface bullshit i have a dad that loves me and that's proud of me and not everybody has that so
1: Ah, i'm grateful for it yeah there's a lot of sons out there that have no fucking clue where their dad even lives or if he lives or you know anything about him so i think it's all relative
0: massively Um, relative yeah
1: Totally personal, totally subjective. Um, I, I'm so happy you brought up the letter. I, 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 that's one of the tools that I talk about in, in uh, nurturing friendship. And I, again, I think you know, friends, family, call it whatever you want. It's all, you know, the love and to connections. Love and to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the power of a handwritten letter is amazing. So I have some some of my best friends are uh, a group of. Uh, Australians that we met at a business seminar, uh, 20, 20 years ago when I was starting a real estate career and, um, they become our best mates. And, um, I just did a trip to Israel and Ireland with one of, uh, one of them. And I, they, they talk about the, you know, the, I wrote him a letter, um, just thanking him for his friendship. I mean, that's all it really was. It was just a fucking love letter saying, thanks mate. And, um, I got your back and, you know, thanks for always making me laugh and, you know, nothing, nothing crazy. And our, his response, I got a voicemail from him and Aussies are, uh, you're a Kiwi. So, you know, Aussie blokes don't fucking get, uh, they're, they're usually pretty guarded and, and um, but he reached out to me and he left me a, a voicemail. Unfortunately, I didn't pick up after he received my letter. And he said, you know what, mate, I got, I got your letter and I got a I got to tell you how it touched me. And, um, he, he, he said, I want to ask you permission if I can put the letter in a frame and keep it on my desk at the office just to remind me of, of what matters most. And I, you know, wow. obviously that was,
0: uh, that's pretty not, cool.
1: Not the response I was expecting to get by writing a letter, but it, we, you know, again, we don't slow down. We don't take the time, you know, technology is, is, it's a beautiful tool, but it can also really fuck you up and disconnect you if you don't. Uh, create some boundaries around it, and I think that the the power of taking a pen to paper and like you said earlier, men like time to digest shit and be uninterrupted and I think that uh a handwritten letter is is probably one of the most simplest but most effective uh gifts you can give someone, obviously it works for you because you're you're able to just turn around and grab the letter that your dad wrote you a few years ago or whenever you were whenever he gave that to you and you and you 're still carrying it around with you uh today so it, it obviously it works.
0: Yeah, it does. And I mean, it's a testament to my dad. I was from my dad's second marriage, so he was quite a bit older, you know, when he had me. And um, so now I'm 33, he's 77. And, you know, I came out as gay when I was 22. And for him, you know, I have a lot of compassion for him because homosexuality was illegal for more of his life than it's been legal, let alone accepted. So, you know, he struggled with that. That's been a challenge we went through. And then ultimately over time, it's been... 11 years since that first conversation. He's grown, and, you know, we've had conversations to the point now where he's so loving and caring and friendly to all my um, partners that I've I've brought home and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. it's a testament to him. Even uh, he's a little bit older, and from he's definitely firmly in the old school way of thinking, but has still chosen love and, you know, eventually always chooses the right thing, uh, which is love and connection. So it's a testament to him. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing. It's awesome. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit. One of the Fs is finance. And uh, one thing about you is you've made millions of dollars and lost millions of dollars and made millions of dollars. So I know for all the guys listening, um, no matter how much you deny it, uh, wealth and money and finance is a huge part of life. It's one of the biggest reasons relationships break down, arguments over money. So. I'm keen to hear um, your story about making wealth and some of the the insights you might have for the guys listening.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I come from a humble background, what I talked about earlier, where definitely don't come from money. My my old man, the only asset he ever owned was the house that we were raised in. Um, So do not come from a real estate background, but a childhood friend of mine, um, after getting into enough financial pain, meaning credit card debt and not being able to pay the rent where we were living in Santa Barbara at the time, Looked at each other and said, fuck this. Let's try and figure out this thing on our own and, and start something. So we um, at the time I was teaching special ed and couldn't pay the rent and, uh, you know, college degree and making like nine bucks an hour. Um, it's just I was smart enough to look at it and say, this shit's not sustainable and I, I need to do something different. Um, I, I always had an entrepreneurial niche um, or I'm sorry, itch as a, you know, I have been started got my first job when I was like 10 years old in New Jersey. So one thing I'll say is, is that a, growing up in that environment. Uh, definitely instilled a work ethic, pretty competitive, uh, fast paced environment. Um, and so when we were 25 years old, we, uh, started our first real estate, um, investment firm. And when I say that, I mean, it sounds like it was all, you know, it was, (laughs) we were broke and, 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 put together a simple business plan and raise some money to buy a, a, a triplex, which was our first deal in California. And then, um,
0: what's a triplex for, for those of us a, that aren't from America.
1: A, a triplex is just like a, a three family, a small multi-unit um, where you have three families living in one building. And, you know, I remember being really nervous getting started and um, putting together that plan because at the time I was making about, you know, 17 grand a year and we were looking to raise, I think it was something like, you know, $40,000 as a down payment to buy this place. So you can imagine the, the anxiety around asking for double uh, the yeah. amount of money that I was working for a year um, in, in, in one deal. So it, it, you know, we got out of our, we got over the fear. Um, the numbers did make sense. We we uh, did that deal. And, you know, 20 years later, we started out broke. We made you know, multi-millions dollars in the California market before we were 30 and then the global financial crisis and eight hit and all the banks shut down and all the investors went away and we lost it all. Um, and then humbly had to rebuild and, you know, fast forward to today, um, you know, back to doing very well. But I think for the listeners, I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's only so much detail I can go into. I think that the, the, the advice that I'm okay giving and I'm, I'm always, careful to, to prescribe anything is, is that I think that, you know, there's a huge psychological shift or paradigm shift that happens when you get your head around the idea of getting your money or other people's money working for you versus you working for your money, because we're, we're told to, you know, get an education and get good grades and go get a job and work your way up. And that's, that's, that's absolute bullshit. I mean, if you look at some of the most when you're, when you're just looking at money and and finance and and financial wealth, um, you can just do your own Google research. I mean, most millionaires and most billionaires were made, um, self-made and, and, um, did not follow that traditional bullshit, Climb the corporate ladder, um, get good grades in school, um, thing that were that was all shoved down our throats as youngsters. So we chose real estate as a as a vehicle. I think it's the best asset class in the world. It, it creates a complete freedom of time um, if it's set up properly and you put in the time and and you're persistent with it, um, and it. It's it's the best tool for a leverage of time in my opinion because it allows other people's money and the bank's money to work for me while I'm you know sitting here on this on this call with you today. And, you know, I'm able to have a lot of free time with my kids and that shit did not happen overnight. Like I said, we made a lot of money fairly quickly. We almost lost it all and had some really uncomfortable years there um, early on in my marriage and had a rebuild. But, um, there's, there's something about understanding money working, especially other people's money working for you, which is what we call leverage in real estate. Versus you you know going into an office or going into your job hitting a time clock and getting paid in direct correlation to the amount of hours you put in I mean it's a, it's a fucking game changer when you when you can get your head around it and actually start to um, you know invest versus just work.
0: Yeah, we have in New Zealand property ownership is the number one place that people put their money and just in their own home so the this, this stock market investing is you know almost non-existent outside of retirement funds and that kind of thing. So, uh, typically in New Zealand, you would buy a home for yourself and then maybe buy one rental property. But mm-hmm. is that because I hear a lot that, you know, your, your own home is not necessarily an asset. Sure. It will go up in value over time, but it's not something that like you say, will pay you money. Um, or yeah, you do I podcasts with Kiwis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't agree with that. I think that's bullshit. I can give you all kinds of ways to make money with your, uh, With your personal residence, but I I am familiar with the, uh, with the Kiwi. I've done some speaking down in a lot in in Australia and then some, some events in Wellington and Auckland, um, specifically around real estate investments down there and and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it was a few years ago since I've spoken there and I I don't know uh, where the New Zealand market's at, but, um, when I was there and it floored me that the typical Kiwi investor would be happy to buy a negatively geared property and lose money on a monthly basis um, in, in hopes um, that the property was going to appreciate in an equity. And I, to me, that's not investing; that's speculating. And maybe the times have changed in in New, in New Zealand, but um, it's complete in complete contradiction to how we invest. So we buy, you know, positively geared or, or positive cash flowing properties, meaning that if I have a mortgage on it, that the rents that the rents more than cover the expense of the the, the loan and the taxes and the insurance etc um and that's what creates a freedom of time the equity growth is an absolute part of the conversation um it's how i i believe that long term wealth is actually created in in long term buying and holding uh uh rental property which is what we've done for 20 years and and through different cycles and what have you and we've invested in 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 Australia um as well so we've done some international investing but I, I don't know. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong or maybe you don't know yourself, but there, investing is, is means you make, the, you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but there's the, the old Warren Buffett thing is, is, you know, there, there's two rules to, uh, investing. Number one is, is to make money. And number two is, is don't forget to, uh, number <laughs> don't
0: one.
1: Forget, yeah, don't forget rule <laughs> number one. And it's not rocket science. Like I'm a real simple guy. I'm not an intellect. I'm not a, um, a highly educated guy. I just know that I know that if there's a plus in front of the the uh, bank statement at the end of the month, or that that portfolio statement, then it's a good thing. And that if you're losing money, then you better do something to change that shit real quick.
0: Yeah, good advice. And as <laughs> y- y- you talked about, um, you know, the, the the shift in mindset being the most important thing, and just you know that shift to go, hey, stop working for money, start getting other people's money working for you. Is there any other mindset shifts around creating wealth that that come to mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of continuing education. So you've probably heard, and a lot of the viewers have probably heard of the uh, Kiyosaki's rich dad, poor dad, or, or maybe you'd never heard of it. If you haven't, I would, that's the book that sort of, um, got the light bulb in my head to go off. Um, it was written well, it was written pretty simply, and it just gets, gets you to look at some tangible examples and, and get your head around the idea of the, the old industri- industrial way of, you know, you, Punching a clock and working for your money is 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 it's barbaric and it's not never it's like a hamster on a fucking wheel. I mean the problem with that model is is, is as soon as you stop going to work, you're dead in the water and your income stops. And so, why not um, you know use that that tool of leverage that I that I spoke about? And, and this I want to be want to be careful here that I'm not giving advice or, or people interpreting that they should go quit their jobs and you know, go start a real estate and full-time investment career in in real estate. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying just take one little baby step and, and start educating yourself. Maybe read that book, rich dad, poor dad. I think that's a a phenomenal tool. I think there's an, oddly enough, a a Kiwi um, wrote a book called grow rich with the property cycles. His name's Kieran Trass. I quote him. I speak on stages and all over the world and raising money for our real estate firm. And uh, I, I, to the to this day, still talk about that book and how it's a, it's a it's a real boring book, but it's a game. It's a it's like a, a playbook for understanding understanding real estate and how the real estate cycle works. And that if you can get your head around that, then you can make money in any market. Um, again, it's called Grow Rich with the Property Cycles, and the guy's name's Kieran Trass. And um,
0: we'll we've put been, a link to that in the in the notes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's gonna just so you know, it's 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 out of print, so it might be a pain in the ass to get, but whatever right. whatever it takes to to get um get your hands on it. I, I had I, I gave that uh that resource on a on a talk in Silicon Valley and I got off the stage and obviously the people there are very savvy and they all have a smartphone in their pocket and the guy runs up to me when I get off stage and he puts the phone in my face and he's like, You want me to spend, you know, twelve hundred dollars on this someone was reselling the book
0: uh <laughs> all right, for on, premium. on e-
1: on eBay or on Amazon or something for some ridiculous price. But hey, you know what, if he had to write a check for 1200 bucks to, to figure out how to stop punching a time clock and get his money working for him, then you know, that's a small, uh, small price to pay for a book in my opinion. But it's all, it's all relative. I, I would say that, uh, you know, hopefully the, the bit of advice or, or nugget from doing it for the last 20 years, is is, is really just that, you know start to educate yourself and start to look at how you can get and there's other investment vehicles out there that i would never try to talk about because i all i do is real estate and that's all i know um you know there's the money markets and there's stocks and there's options and all that shit but i i don't understand that so i'm not going to speak about it I, I just try to teach from
0: experience yeah the biggest the biggest issue in new zealand now is in um in auckland uh you know our biggest city that the prices have just skyrocketed over the last few years, so there's a huge boom there to the point where you know within five ten fifteen minutes of the central city properties there's nothing under a million dollars and so yeah. you know the the first home buyer, as they call it down there is uh is struggling to to get into the market or they have to move thirty or forty minutes out in the city to get a two bedroom place for five or six hundred thousand um that's still you know way more than probably they should be buying for the income that they have or the, the, the median income in Auckland.
1: Well, that's the that's the negative gear that I'm talking about. So my two cents on that is is don't invest in, in New Zealand. It, it's it's priced out, it's topped out, it's in what we call a seller's market and that's the last place you should be putting your money, whether it's for your personal residence or for an, an investment property. I mean, that's why I go to places like Silicon Valley that are in a similar cycle in the market um, where you pay a million five for a little shitty condo in San Francisco. And all of those investors are getting their money out of Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv. Israel is another place where I do a lot of talks, which is in a similar cycle um, to San Francisco and to Auckland. Um, and the invest, the smart investors are getting their money out of that type of market and into a market um, like Florida, which is where I live and invest full time where the median price is $170,000. So you have very, <laughs> we are selling brand new um, construction four bedroom two bath with a, a two car uh, attached garage for one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. I mean, the, you know, the people in Auckland would scratch their head and say, "Well, that must be a scammer."
0: They'll the be fuck crying. There'll be people in Auckland crying when you just did that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm happy to get on the horn on a on a side conversation and see how I can help. That I, I have we have a large. Uh, investor base in, uh, in, in, Australia. I don't work with any, I, I take that back. We have a, a, a small handful of Kiwi investors. Um, but I think the, the advice or the takeaway should be for the listener is, is get out of your own backyard. If it's in a, in a seller's market, the last thing you want to do is you're just, that's like a pig running to the slaughter. I mean, you, you want to put money into a market that's topped out. Guess what's going to happen? I mean, what, what goes up must come down and ask me how I know that's, I talked, you know, we talked earlier about. And I go into detail in the book. We we made millions of dollars in the uh, before hitting 30 in the California markets, and then um, we were like, well, shit, we have we're young and we have all this money. We we better reinvest it and put it into a a new market. So we took millions of dollars out of California in 04 and 05 and 06, and in uh, started plowing millions of dollars into the Jacksonville, Florida market um, in 06 and 07, and then, and then by 2008, the world was unraveling and we were almost bankrupt. So the, the smartest thing I could have done is sit on the sidelines, um, or understand the cycles a little better. No, no one has a crystal ball. I want to be clear that no one has a, no one can see into the future. But once you, you know, read that book that I talked about, start to educate yourself, um, there is a cycle. There's, it's a three-prong cycle. So there's, there's a, a boom, a slump, and a recovery, and it goes around in a circle every 10 to 15 years: boom, slump, recovery. And this is what Karen Trask talks about in the, in the book I mentioned earlier. And so when we sold out at the top in California in '06, sh- my ass should have went surfing for a few years and sat on the sidelines. Yeah. Um, I was, I was young, dumb, and full of cum, and, and really aggressive and saying I got to put this money in an, an, another market and um, we're feeling it pretty
0: good about your skills at that point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you know, you're 30 years old, you're a multimillionaire. You think you got the, the world by the balls and then the world just laughs at you and spits you out the other side and you're, you're bankrupt a couple of years later. Um, so there is a, there's an education process to it. Um, there's understanding fundamentals, there's understanding the real estate cycle, which this book will educate you on, um, in a dry way, but take the couple hours to educate yourself to avoid, uh, you know, losing millions of dollars, I think, it's a good investment.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I just heard a, a, just a little video by Tony Robbins before, and he was saying uh, that, you know, we all know life is not a linear path. Life is not a linear path to success. It's, you, you go all over the place, ups and downs, failures. And he said you've got to discipline your disappointment, which I thought was awesome. I, I hadn't heard that before, which he was saying when you have a failure, um, don't let that wipe you out. Just know that, hey, it's a natural part of it. Um, have a cry, be sad, be upset, and then get back on the horse and keep moving, get that trajectory going again, like discipline your disappointment, not to take over your life and, and keep you down. So yeah. it sounds like you were able to bounce back pretty quickly.
1: Uh, well, uh, that's relative, right? Uh, it, it, <laughs> it felt, it felt like a fucking eternity in 2008 and 2009 yeah, and 2010. Long couple of years. <laughs> Yeah. I had to go to my wife who I was just married, um, two years previous and we were multi billionaires for the first two year of our two years of our marriage and go to her in in 08 and say, sweetheart, I can't pay the fucking light bill. Can you buy some groceries so we can eat? And oh, man. I, I learned a lot about the, the loyalty and, uh, what was, what was, uh, really important to my wife in a, a short time there. And, you know, fortunately for me, she's, uh, really supportive and, um, you know, really, uh, uh it's true it's true love you can't you know you she could have said well you know go fuck yourself and you know i, I thought we were going to live this lavish lifestyle and she said well let's buckle down and i'll work a little harder and you figure out how to clean up your mess and uh, we'll we'll work on it together so it was uh i feel very blessed to to, uh, to have a, a marriage like that
0: and i suppose now you have um two little boys and a family so plus what you went through in 08 does that make your you investing conservative? Would you use the word conservative or just more savvy? Uh,
1: you know that's a really smart question. I, I think that that's completely subjective on what's conservative to me and and I even say this from stage a lot. you know I, I say that yes, I got humbled and i'm I'm ultra conservative now, and I look at leverage and debt uh, very much different. With all that said, I still have millions of dollars of good debt in our real estate portfolio, but there's a there's a huge difference between good debt and bad debt meaning good debt is like a real estate portfolio that is positive cash flow that is growing in equity and, and, um, you know, giving you a freedom of time. Um, it's, it's the word leverage, um, versus, you know, bad debt is going out and buying a Harley Davidson or a yacht on a credit card that charges you 13% interest. Um, I know that sounds overly, um, obvious, but it's, it's fucking incredible to me how many doctors and lawyers and high income earners are out there that, you know, they make 500 grand a year and they and they spend 600 grand a year. <laughs> so yeah. It's, it's not, not about
0: what you make. It's what you keep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: You took the words out of my yeah, mouth. Snip. Yeah. To answer your, answer your question, I got completely humbled. I look at debt very differently now. Um, my personal goals are to get free and clear as quickly as possible. So I would much rather own 10 homes free and clear than a, a couple hundred houses with high leverage um so the goal and, is
0: to be debt free eventually
1: yeah and personally personally my fam- my wife and i don't have any debt so all, all of our if i get hit by a truck tomorrow she's fine um so now i'm working on um chiseling away at the at the business debt and, and getting the the portfolio um pruned down before i wanted to own hundreds and hundreds of houses and you know beat my chest and and this machisto bullshit that doesn't work, which I learned the hard way in, in 08. Um, and now I'm, I'm just want simplicity. I'd I'd like to have a small portfolio that's either very lowly leveraged or completely free and clear. And it's all about cash flow and lifestyle for me. I, I don't need, you know, we live well below our means and we, and we, we love to travel and, Um, A a little just just quick before we wrap up, because I'm looking at the time here. Um, You mentioned earlier that the the idea or the notion that your your personal residence can't be an asset. And I I can give you a quick example on how I told you I'm I'm in Miami for the month right now with my family because we put the kids in in school down here for a, a German Montessori camp. And we are renting a little Airbnb um on the beach and it's like a it's beautiful. I mean the, the view is, is spectacular. We're on the twenty sixth floor overlooking, you know, Miami and in the ocean. Um and it costs us two hundred dollars a month. And while we're down here, we're Airbnb, our personal residence at four hundred dollars a night.
0: Um you're making money. So
1: I'm making I'm getting paid to be down here and give my family this incredible experience down in South Florida. Um so I, I call bullshit on the, uh, I, I think that the old way before there was an Airbnb and before people were creative with, uh, travel, um, that maybe, maybe your house could be a liability, but I, I don't agree at all. I think that, um, it can be a, an asset and give you freedom to be able to trans, you know, travel with your family and, and actually, even if you just cover your costs, um, you don't have to make money by traveling. Um, it completely changes the game for young families that are wanting to, you know, show their kids the world and, and get out there and do that. So if you live in a desirable area, which is obviously a, a, a prerequisite, you can't, you know, you got to have a, a fairly decent house that's clean in a desirable area, but you can rent your place and then go travel for a few months and, and pay for your expenses.
0: Well, from yoga in India to uh, relationships with your parents to property investment, <laughs> what kind of podcast is this kind of range? This is, this is good stuff.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I'm honored to uh, be able to chat with you. And, I, I appreciate
0: uh, it. Yeah. What's so, Brian, the book's called um, What Matters Most? Uh, and I think you said you can find a copy on your website for free. Well, what's the best way if people want to follow you or reach out to you or learn more about you?
1: Yeah, I would say the easiest is uh, I have a, a website for the book that has a, a free uh, downloaded the chapter and some tools it's just my name brian it's uh b-r-i-a-n and my last name is scrone s-c-r-o-n-e.com and I, i'm hoping you can put it in the notes yeah the go in
0: the notes no problem yeah yeah um, yeah i know if quite a few people want to learn more more about you um so before we wrap up, just the last few minutes, the last question that everybody loves is about the dark side, and you know I think a <laughs> unique perspective on this. So, uh, do you have a dark side? How do you embrace it?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I I saw your notes and prepared for the call, and I thought, well, fuck, how do I answer that? Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. So here's 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 being. Uh, Continued vulnerability. I, I love sex. And I think that a lot of men out there can relate to that, whether you're, you're heterosexual or gay, like you said, you are. Um, I think about sex all day, every day. Um, I'm a happily married man. I don't cheat on my wife, but, um, my, my, uh, I, I see the beauty in, 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 the opposite sex. So for me, it's, it's, um, it's not a dark thing. Um, I think that it's, it's actually more sexual beings at the end of the day. Right. So I have to keep it in check. Um, and so I've had lots of, you know, heart to hearts with my wife about how I think about sex all day. And, um, you know, we're, we're at the point where we can laugh about it. Um, I probably need it a lot more than she does. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, but I think a, most men can relate to, um, I think that, um, again, it's for me, it's not a dark thing, but I do have to keep it in check because I'm, I'm a married man and I have, uh, I want to be faithful. Um, and I am, but, um, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. I think yeah, it's that perfect.
0: Makes... I mean, the, the gift is just you saying it and being honest about it. So thank you for that. It's, everybody, everybody loves that question. That's one of, the, one of the most honest answers. And I guess the way you embrace it is by not ignoring it. Like you say, it's natural. Have conversations with your partner about it. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I
1: could I could go into all kinds of detail there, but that would become <laughs> X-rated. Quick. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think. I think the jokes aside, I I read something um, somewhere and you always have to be careful where you get your information, but the average male thinks about sex like 37 times a day or some bullshit like that. At the end of the day, um, it's not it's not a demon and it's not dark for me, but I I do need to keep it in check because obviously I want to be a faithful husband and and father.
0: Brian, this has been so much fun. I just, this has been one of my favorite episodes so far. You're a great guy, and you know, this has been a wonderfully rich and deep conversation about a whole lot of topics. So, thank you for giving up your time for to come and talk to me.
1: Uh, thanks, mate. Hopefully, we'll uh, see you somewhere in our travels around the world. I'm, I'm uh, anxious to hear about your your trip there to where you are in Colombia. That sounds amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to that. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, mate go guys my fantastic conversation with brian scrone i hope you enjoyed that one as much as i enjoyed it Uh, you can find more about brian at his website brian or at his facebook page facebook.com slash brian five the number five f s five f's and that's it for this week i hope you enjoy the show share it around spread it around tell a friend and i will love you forever and i'll be back next week with episode number 32 of the nathan seawood show That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.